Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great pleasure to welcome Callum Chase, author and keynote speaker on the topic of AI, author of The Economic Singularity, Surviving AI, Pandora's Brain, and many, many books to come, and a fantastic website, pandorasbrain.com. Welcome to the show, Callum. Thank you very much, Aidan. It's great to have you here and appreciate your time. That's a honor to be here i've watched so many of your your talks on youtube and, and on your website you're just such a wealth of knowledge on, on ai and artificial intelligence general intelligence but also their social impact that this will have on the world but i thought it'd be very helpful for our audience to track almost a linear progression of how we got to where we are and where and where in fact we're going sure so we're at a very interesting point back as recently as 2012, there was a revolution in artificial intelligence when a, an, an approach called machine learning, and in particular approach called deep learning, which is a type of machine learning, uh, an approach to AI called deep learning became fantastically successful, successful. And for the first time, machines became able to recognize images, including faces, as well as or better than humans. Um, so they're already at that point. They're superhuman in recognizing faces. They are uh, overtaking us right now in speech recognition. They can already uh, they can already recognize speech better than we can in unnoisy environments. Uh, and they're catching up fast with us in natural language programming. So so we're at a sort of a tipping point. Um, and it's been a long time coming. Artificial intelligence is an overnight success, which is 60 years in the making. Uh, it had its 60th anniversary last year. Um, and where we're going is to incredible places because when machines become much better than us, which they will, at uh, image recognition, speech recognition, and natural language programming, they will be able to do everything that we can much better than us, and they will continue to improve. And that will have incredible effects. Uh, I believe that the there are two huge, huge changes coming, and I call them the economic singularity, um, and then the technological singularity. The economic singularity will be in the next 10 to 40 years, somewhere in that time period. And, and it means that machines will do all the jobs that we do. So humans won't cease to exist, but we simply won't be able to work for a living. And we're going to have to decouple income from jobs. That's a huge change and a huge challenge. And that's what I call the economic singularity. Further ahead than that, is the time when we create a superintelligence. So we create, first of all, an artificial general intelligence, an AGI, which is a machine which has all the cognitive abilities of, a, of an adult human. And once we get there, it will quickly become a superintelligence because machines can always be improved in, the way that, in, in a way that we can't. Machines get twice as good every 18 months under a process known as Moore's Law. And when we have superintelligence, uh, which is continuing to get smarter and smarter all the time, um, then we will, humans will become the second smartest species on the planet, which is the position that chimpanzees are in at the moment, and it's not very good for them. Uh, and, and it may not be very good for us, unless, again, we meet that challenge successfully. 
before we, we actually talk about the challenge uh, of that, I think from your talks and the general public's perception of AI and AGI is robots and it's science fiction, while it's been science fact for quite some time. It's like the boiling frog in a way where people don't realize it's happening all around them, but actually can't put it in context. And you give some great examples of that, of AI companies who actually are a huge part of our daily habits and also actually the technology we use, that's a huge part of our daily habits. Could we put AI in context? I think it's important to say that, that the really impressive achievements of AI are mostly in the future. And that's really the reason why people haven't taken it seriously until, until now. And now the, the media is full of it uh, because we can start to see it happening. So examples where you can see it in action is Google search is, is the obvious one. Um, if you've used Google search regularly over a period of anything more than two years, you, you should have noticed it's got a lot better. If you type in, um, I don't know, how do I use how do I use dumbbell weights, for instance? If you typed that in two years ago, you'd have got a reply from a website called Quora because they have lots of questions on their website that says that. If you type that question in now, you're quite likely to get taken to what um, the world, all the users of search, believe is the most in useful answer to your specific question. Um, so if you, if you use Google search with your eyes open, you'll see it's getting much better. And another great example is Google Maps. If you use Google Maps as your GPS in a car, you'll find that it isn't any longer driving you into lakes and one-way one way streets the wrong way that it, in the way that it used to because it's getting much better because the data they've got and the algorithms they're using are much better. Um, and increasingly, Google Maps, are they're, they're getting very good at telling you what's the quickest route given the existing traffic conditions, which again, you know, two or three years ago, they just really weren't, weren't able to do. So you can see these things happening before your very eyes but as i say it's important to realize that we we've hardly started yet we haven't got technological automa automation yet and the first huge wave of that w that we will see are self-driving vehicles uh, i call them autos because i'm sure that the phrase self-driving vehicles is, is too clunky to be used for long so autos self-driving cars and so on are going to um become mainstream in the next decade. They're already being tested. You can get in a self-driving taxi in Pittsburgh and Singapore right now. You can flag the car down. It will drive you where you want to go without any human driving it. And autos are going to become the norm because they're much better at driving than we are. We kill 1.2 million people on the roads every year, and that's not a very good thing. Uh, and it's because we're sending humans to do a machine's job. Machines drive better than us, and therefore they will be the drivers. And in the course of the 20s, the 2020s, I think most professional drivers are going to find themselves out of work because a driver not only causes all those accidents, a human driver, but also adds 25% to the cost of the vehicle. So you take the human out, you save a lot of money, you save a lot of lives. That's an, you know, an irresistible argument for self-driving vehicles. So over the 2020s, we're going to see most professional drivers put out of work. And that's 5 million people in the States, about a million people in the UK. That's going to have a huge impact. What are all those people going to do? Uh, it's not at all obvious. And I think that that's going to be the first time most people really wake up to, to the fact that 
wow, technological unemployment really is coming. Yeah, because w you, you talk about this extensively in the book and you give some great examples about in, in the US where 40% of jobs disappeared, but it took 100 years. And one of the things you talk about is Moore's Law, but also this huge acceleration of technology. Like, I, I think people don't understand that because they have no context because this is new for all of us. And you gave a great example of this uh, in in one of your talks where you talked about Wembley Stadium filling with water. Could you, t you tell talk to us about that? Because I think the context piece is always the piece that's missing and you do a fantastic job in the books. And, and the books actually, for me, are the best I've read for bringing it down to the common man and making it understandable. Yes, maintaining every piece of the future of, those, of, of what we're gonna see. Yeah, you're quite right. It, it is absolutely essential to understand exponential change if you want to understand the future that we're all, we're all going to be living in. Exponential growth is, is really very straightforward. It's, it's simply um, an increase by the same multiple every period. So a doubling, for instance, if it's exponential with the power of two, uh, a doubling of some quantity. In the case of computers, they're getting twice as powerful every 18 months. This is the process known as Moore's Law. So every 18 months, $1,000 worth of computing gets twice as fast, uh, twice, as, twice as powerful. Um, a, the, the, the analogy that you refer to is the idea that you, you go to Wembley Stadium and it's been sealed, so it's, it, it's waterproof. You can't, you can't, water doesn't escape it. If you fill it with water, it doesn't escape. And the referee or somebody walks out into the middle of the pitch and drops one drop of water onto the pitch. A minute later, they drop two drops of water onto the pitch. A minute after that, they drop four drops. And the minute after that, eight. A minute after that, 16, and so on. And so this is happening every minute. And for a long time, it's very, very boring. Nothing is happening, really. Um, and then you ask the audience, you know, how long do you think it would take for the stadium to fill? Now, most people would say, well, years at that rate. It'll take forever. Actually, the answer is it takes 49 minutes to fill the stadium full of water. Because as you double things, the... Um, the, the, the observable increase is very fast. Worryingly, although it takes 49 minutes to fill the stadium, until the last seven minutes, the floor is, the, the grass is just damp. You can't really see the water. And of course, the thing with an exponential growth is the period before the last period, you're only halfway there. So one minute before that 49 minutes, the stadium's only halfway full. Exponential growth is very powerful. It gets you a long way, but it's backloaded. For a long time, it looks like nothing much is happening. And then suddenly everything happens in a rush. And you, you mentioned boiling frogs earlier, um, which by the way, interestingly, is a myth. Uh, if you put a frog into a pan of water and, it, and then slowly heat the water up, it doesn't sit there and boil, it jumps out. <laughs> and this has been known for a long time. No, no, it's fascinating. One of the things that's fascinating about that, that little piece of information is that there's a very successful book written uh, called The Age of, ooh, I've forgotten what it was, but the man, the author was Charles Handy, he's a business author. It was a big business book, but his sort of starting analogy was that boiling frog thing. Now he wrote that book and published it in, I think it was 1989, and everybody thought, well, okay, that's, that's what happens if you put a, a frog into a, boil, into a pan of water, because nobody could check it. Now, he couldn't write that book using that analogy because you go onto Wikipedia and say, is it true if you put a frog in a 
pan of water and boil it, does the fog save? And the internet is, it will, will give you the answer in five seconds flat. No, it's not true. It's been known since 1800. It's not true. Yeah. And, and as you say, it's the AI actually giving you that answer today. <laughs> exactly. while, while two years ago, it wasn't. But yeah. it, it raises an interesting point. Uh, you will refer to again is... is a lot of the companies we see today, we were we we think of and as digital companies, and a lot of a lot of traditional corporate companies are dealing with a digital transformation. And there are only, for example, so many companies. Some don't even have websites. Some don't even have mobile websites, and they're they're still struggling with that and the change in audience reach through social media, etc. But the behemoths in that world are the Facebooks and Googles, etc., which are essentially becoming and have become nearly entirely AI companies, AI driven, certainly from a technology perspective. That, that's absolutely right. Google set out to be an AI company very early on. Um, I forget which one it was, but one of the founders, Sergey Brin or Larry Page said, what we're about is building a brain. We want to build a brain that's better than the human brain. So they've always been an AI company. Facebook, uh, Zuckerberg got the idea very fast and, and Facebook has been a very AI driven company for a long time they've invested in very uh, good and very expensive ai talent for a long time microsoft did a pivot as they say in in, in business in, in venture capital circles last year um, they switched about five thousand of their researchers from whatever they were doing before into ai and microsoft is now an ai driven company intel has recently done the same uh, not least because it it sees uh, nvidia the other great chip manufacturing company um, catching up on it fast. NVIDIA has for some time portrayed itself as an AI company. So the, the big American tech firms are all increasingly seeing themselves as AI company. they, companies. They are desperately keen to recruit AI talent. They spend a vast amount of money on it and they are using it in their products and services and it's very effective. It makes money. Uh, in China, there are three big AI-driven companies. Um, they are uh, Baidu, which is the Chinese Google, Alibaba, which is the Chinese Amazon, and Tencent, which is a, a big telecoms company. And in Europe, the list of large AI-driven companies is non-existent. There aren't any. And I think that this is probably quite a big problem for Europe. We have lots of AI talent, uh, London, Berlin, uh, Dublin, lots of talent, talented AI experts around. They tend to get bought up by American and Chinese companies. Um, that's, I think that's a, a major problem for us. One of the things you do refer to as well as Google's motto of don't be evil or don't do evil is is really important because if all the power and, and again touching on economic singularity that if the distribution of wealth is very very concentrated with certain individuals or certain companies so if you think of individuals it's the Zuckerbergs it's the Pages uh, and the Brins and of course the Gateses, and you think if in that world, if people aren't working and you, you, there's a universal basic income uh, decided at that stage, there's a huge power with certain individuals and it's very, very important that their motivations are pure and that motto of don't do evil or don't be evil becomes really, really important and Elon Musk has touched on this as indeed Stephen Hawking about the importance of the power motivations behind these companies and and also the power of ai and that the fact that you know in a dystopian universe it could be a dangerous world if if the robots certainly take over or the the people 
who control the robots can take over that's uh it's a it's a lot of responsibility and a lot of power in one place that's very true and i uh, have probably a, an, an unusual view that uh, the people running Google and Facebook are essentially good people. Um, I, I think probably lots of Brits see them mainly as tax dodgers. But I think the reason why um, Bryn, Page, Zuckerberg, Gates and so on get up in the morning is not to make lots of money and to pay as little tax as possible. I think it's to make the world a more interesting place faster. I think the fu- I think they see... They, they believe the future will be very exciting and they want to make it happen quicker. So I think they are well-motivated people, people of goodwill. And as you say, that's important because both with both the singularities, the, outcome, the outcomes could be very, very bad or they could be very, very good. And to some extent, it's up to we humans to choose which way it goes. So with the economic singularity, if it goes well, we end up in a world where machines do all the boring stuff, they do all the jobs. And humans do the important business of life, which is playing and learning and exploring and having fun and socializing. If we manage it badly, we end up with a world where a small number of people are doing fantastically well and everybody else is in a desperate situation with no income. And it's a really hard challenge to get right because you know people say, well, we'll need universal basic income which is you know, a, p- a payment to every citizen just because you're a citizen. You don't have to do anything for the money, you just get it. And that's great, but u- universal basic income is a, at a subsistence level. And if you were a professional driver or a, or a lawyer or a, uh, you know, a radio presenter or a writer, um, you're not going to be happy on a subsistence income. And when you have most of the population unhappy, you have a very dangerous situation. We've already seen what happens... Um, in two big votes last year where a lot of people were pretty gruntled because their incomes have been static for a few years. If your incomes go down to subsistence level and they show no sign of ever looking like going up again, um, the level of unhappiness is going to be much greater. So there's there's a really big challenge. Uh, And frankly, I don't know how we solve that challenge. And it worries me that so few people are addressing the challenge at all seriously. Yeah, and it's kind of seen as this, that's this is where I go with the science fiction, and it's often disregarded that way, or your books, for example, would be claimed as being futuristic, and, and, and that's why I think, to put it in context, which you do so well with the Wembley Stadium analogy, is it's, it's, it's why we see companies suddenly get disrupted overnight and suddenly disappear, the blockbusters, the Kodaks, and these companies are so set or fixed for an old world that they let in these disruptors that the disruptor just starts from today's world or tomorrow's world and that's the world catch up very quickly and disrupts it entirely and i think again it'd be great calm if you could touch on on that digital disruption because it's very much part of the story yeah so digital disruption has toppled <laughs> a number of mighty companies and you mentioned kodak is is, is the classic example um, i remember talking to a kodak executive it must have been around 1990 I think saying you know it looks like uh, digital photography is going to be very very big isn't that a danger for uh, Kodak which was dependent on paper based photography and he said no no uh, people will always want to print out their their pictures and so we'll have a business for a long long time well he was wrong Uh, and now Kodak has gone from being a very very large company employing something like 180,000 people it had 50 significant buildings in the town in on the in the eastern US where it where it was headquartered, 
and it's a tiny business now. It does does a few sort of niche business activities, not not a mate, not a consumer photograph company at, at all anymore. Um, the music industry also has been completely shaken up by digital disruption. It's happening to the book industry now. Uh, it's starting to happen in the music industry, in, in the movie industry. Um, and of course, these are just early days and, and these transformations happen very quickly now, but they're going to happen much, much faster and much, much more often as the exponential growth of the digital revolution continues. Because all of this is part of the information revolution. What happened to the music industry, what happened to Kodak, is part of the information revolution. And this is the third great revolution to wash across humanity. The first was the agricultural revolution about 15,000 years ago. Uh, it happened in various places around the world, different times. The second was the industrial revolution, which started in the UK in 1712 uh, and is still going on. And then the information revolution, which started around about 1960 um, and is in its very early days. Uh, it involves computing, it involves all this digital transformation and it's going to grow much faster. And it slightly annoys me that some people call what's happening now the fourth industrial revolution because it's not. Uh, I think there was one industrial revolution with a number of different phases in it. Um, and, and what's happening now, the information revolution, is even more impactful, much more impactful actually than the industrial revolution. It isn't part of the industrial revolution, it's a new one. Yeah, and the Nokia CEO, do you remember that line he said where we did nothing wrong? And he, this was his basically exit speech to the <laughs> to the whole company. <laughs> and that, that exact phrase was so resonant to me and that that's exactly the problem. People don't see that they're doing anything wrong because they're doing everything perfectly in the world the way it used to be or what, what the world wanted and what people wanted instead of actually there's no foresight or there's no vision of the future or ability given to the company to go, okay, we're Blockbuster, for example, today, but we're going to build Netflix over there in Sector 7G where nobody knows about it, and it's going to have new rules, it's going to be a new company, and we're going to give them license to break the rules. We're going to let them do that, and then we're going to see where we mix in the future. And actually, we need a Netflix and a Hulu and seven other different types of companies because we don't know exactly which one's going to be the right one, but at least we're, we're planning for the future. And what happens is through EBITDA, costs or economic pressure on the company there's no time given to that real focus on the future and you might have a few R&D projects mainly in medtech and health etc but there's very few in in companies like media companies for example to actually go that's the future and we need to actually take a punt on that what's your view on that Colin? well sometimes um, executives are blindsided by an incredibly fast change which comes out of left field and they don't expect it. They're not watching for it carefully enough, perhaps. Um, sometimes perhaps they're just lazy and they deserve what they get. But um, often understanding something coming out of a surprising area, is by, uh, is by definition, it's difficult. But actually, sometimes they do see it. They see it very clearly and they struggle to take the decisions necessary to deal with it. And a great example was the was, was parts of the publishing industry. Uh, the local newspaper industry, the business-to-business -business publishing industry. And I worked as a consultant with, with people in that business in the, in the early and mid-1990s. And they saw the, the web coming, and they knew that it was going to affect them in a big way. I remember somebody showing me the web in 1994, 
and he said, you know, this is going to be important, but we don't yet know what it's going to do to us. Now, quite early on, it became clear that the web was, among other things, a really good platform for classified advertising. Jobs, houses and cars, uh, you could search online in a way that you couldn't search through the classified ads in the local newspapers and the business-to-business -business trade magazines. That's where the classified ads generated most money at the time. So the publishers were saying, okay, there's this new platform where you can, which is a very effective medium for these ads. We should obviously have a presence there. We should, we should own some of that space. The trouble was that there were startups who had nothing to lose by selling classified ads really, really, really cheaply. And so if you were advertising a job, you could do it for, for nothing online, or you could pay uh, the B2B trade magazine quite a lot of money to, to place the ad. So if you were the publisher, to offer the same reach for nothing was very unattractive. And the, the phrase was, if we want to play in that new space, we have to kill our children. We have to cannibalize our existing business. And we can't, we can't do that. You know, we've got a multi-million business here, multi-million pound business. We can't just kill it in order to play in this new platform, which you know, may never work. And so the startups uh, did what the publishers couldn't do. As the, as the startups got bigger, they said to the publishers, look, we've got a valuable business here. You should buy us. And this is what we cost. We're rather expensive. And the publishers said, no, go away. If we want to, we can kill you by starting up alongside you. We just don't want to because we don't want to kill our babies. And then gradually, the money did trickle out of the local press industry and out of the B2B publishers. It was a very, very tough decision. At what point do you jump? If you're running one of the publishers, at what point do you jump into this new platform and accept you've lost the old business and you want to try and own the new business? Um, some of them made it across. They make a lot less money than they used to. Others failed. And you've you got to have some sympathy for them. It was a very hard business decision to make. It brings me to actually something that I found fascinating that I had never ever thought about until I, I read your book, which is, you know, John Maynard Keynes, the famous UK economist. So you, you quote him in the book, in a world of economic singularities, he doesn't call it that at the time, but in a technology unemployment world, those who sweat for their daily bread and leisure is no longer a sweet reward for them. So they basically get to this world where they go, oh, I just want to be able to relax and do nothing and read and do go to the gym and all this kind of thing. But then when they have it, they actually really disappointed or disillusioned and, and lack meaning in their lives. And I felt the creative community of the world went, oh yeah, well in the world of AI, I'm still really important because I have this amazing brain and I can do things and I can draw and I can paint and I can write. And you refer to in the book then that there's actually AI out there writing articles, for example, for newspapers and people can't tell the difference and that there's AI out there that can, that can paint and that can replicate creativity and actually create projects of its own accord where it's not given any inputs as well. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, well, um, it's often said machines can't be creative. And as you say, the, the creative people say they're safe because, because of that. And I'm, I'm afraid they're wrong. Uh, the whole point of machine learning, this new approach to AI, is that you don't program the machine to take a series of highly prescriptive steps going from A to B to Z and you have to go this route. What you do instead is you teach the machine how to learn. So AlphaGo, the uh, DeepMind uh, AI system, it's a deep learning system, 
plus some other stuff, but it's principally a deep learning system which which beat the world's best Go player last March. It wasn't taught how to play Go, and it wasn't taught how to win those matches. It was taught how to learn to play Go. Um, and there's a very nice example of this that you can see online as a short video. Um, um, if you Google DeepMind Breakout, I think that will get you there. And it's a video of a machine learning how to play a very old-fashioned Atari video game called Breakout, where you have a ball and you bounce it against some bricks from below, and then uh, if, if you if you get it right, you break through the bricks and you destroy the wall that is sort of horizontally above you. The machine um, was originally rubbish, and then after about 12 hours of practicing against itself, it got quite good, got to sort of human level. And then I think it was 24 hours, after 24 hours, it had figured out an entirely new approach to the game, which some people say no human had ever done before. Other people say humans had, but certainly the people who um, designed the system didn't know about this trick, which is that you can send the ball round the back of the bricks. And um, that's a very effective way of winning the game. You win it very quickly. So the, the machine created that really rather important, if, if, you're, if your universe is that game, rather important um, approach so they can be creative um, the issue though of, of you know what what um, Maynard Keynes was saying was will people get bored if they have no jobs to do and I, I th people do get very worried about this I don't I think there are two classes of people who show that being jobless is not going to be a problem um, the two groups are retired people now I am one I retired a few years ago and I I've always been fascinated by AI, so I started writing about it, and then I sort of fell into a new career, which I'm greatly enjoying. But um, like a lot of retired people, I'm very busy doing something I love. And the other group is aristocrats, who, you know, whether you love them or loathe them, for centuries they didn't have jobs. Um, some of them did, some of them ran estates or countries, um, but they, you know, most of them didn't have jobs, and they didn't all die of existential despair and boredom. So I think that we will all find interesting things to do when we have no jobs. The thing that worries me is income. I, I, I don't see at the moment how we're going to successfully decouple income from jobs. That's a hard challenge. And you mentioned as well the universal basic income and I know it's something that they're trying in Finland for example at the moment but that, that raises questions about y y no matter what you do you cannot win with this with the human mind the way it is it'll be gone well that's unfairly spread why is why does that guy get the beachfront property and i get the the third floor apartment that i don't want that has a terrible view and people start going you know into this fairness equation and that that raises a whole new ballpark and, and it's it's just one that that no matter how much research we do we don't know what will happen until it happens if it happens and uh, could we touch on that, Callum? Because that, that for me is one of the, the huge questions that is just probably unanswerable at the moment. And I'm, <laughs> and, and I'm asking you the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks for asking me the unanswerable question. But, but you're right, it's an important question. And, and it worries me a lot. Uh, it worries me that, that very few people are thinking about this seriously. Um, and actually, before I go on to the specific of the question, the reason why people aren't thinking about this seriously is, is something that you mentioned earlier. We've seen automation before. We've seen it quite a lot. 
the Industrial Revolution was essentially a process of automating our physical work. Um, machines took over all the jobs that humans used to do with muscle, muscle power. And the poster child is, is agriculture, where in 1800, uh, about 80% of American workers, any, any American working was working on a farm. By 1900, that was down to about 40%. And by tw 2000, it was down to less than 2%. Um, now, all that automation didn't make humans unemployable because the humans went on to do other jobs in cities uh, and increasingly doing cognitive jobs. It did work out very badly for the horse. In 1900, there was about 25 million horses working on American farms, and now there are none. And uh, fortunately, they probably died through natural wastage rather than all being shot. But you know the, the, that, that has removed the need for horses. And so the population of horses in America is much, much smaller than it used to be. What may come next, what I firmly believe will come next, is, is a different kind of automation. It's a process of cognitive automation. The machines aren't coming for our muscle jobs anymore. They're coming for our brain jobs. Now, most economists um, believe this isn't true. And they say this is the Luddite fallacy, referring to the people who uh, used to go around smashing weaving machines at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, who were brutally put down by the, by the British government. I mean, the British government went around hanging people more or less at random to deter people from, from doing this. And so the Luddites were firmly squished. Um, but it, it gave its name to the, Luddite, the, the fallacy, which is the belief that automation creates unemployment, because in the past it hasn't. It hasn't cast, caused lasting unemployment. And the economists are all saying, well, because we, because we know it didn't in the past, it therefore won't in the future. Well, I think that's a bit like saying the day before the Wright brothers took off in their plane, we know we can't fly because we've never flown in the past. And then suddenly the next day you can. And I think in the future, automation can make us unemployable because the, the, because the machines can take over the skills that we use to do jobs. And I don't think we'll create a whole load of new jobs that the machines won't be able to do. Universal basic income is, is often touted as, as the salvation and the, uh, the, the, the silver bullet which will solve the problem of techni technological automation, but it isn't for two reasons. One is it's not enough money. Um, the Finns are experimenting with universal basic income uh, and they're giving 2,000 people about 500 pounds each per month. And what they're actually doing is trying to find a reform for their existing welfare system. They are not trying to solve the problem of technological automation. And they're also not trying to do what the political left thinks universal basic income can do, which is to solve the problem of, of unfairness in the capitalist system. So there's a lot of misunderstandings about universal basic income. But we will undoubtedly need universal basic income when machines start to render large numbers of us unemployed because we can't let people starve, so we're going to have to give them some money. The trouble is it won't be enough. Universal basic income is by its definition basic, it's, it's subsistence level. And as you say, it also leaves uh, or, or sort of reveals, if you like, a, a serious inequality issue. At the moment, you know, some people live in, in the lovely suburb of Hampstead and some people live in the less lovely suburbs. And, and while we're active in a uh, sort of a vibrant capitalist economy where you can improve your situation, people can go up, people can go down, um, and we're actually making people, th th the poorest people in society are better off now than they ever have been in the past. That may be a controversial statement to some, but it, it's true. Um, and while we're in a, in a system of flux, that's not so painful. People do protest about inequality, but it's, 
uh, it's not as bad as it could be. But if you're in a situation where everybody's on the same income and nobody's earning that income, you just receive it because you're a citizen, then it's going to look really, really unfair that some people live in nice big detached houses in leafy suburbs and other people live in cramped tenement flats. How do we solve that problem? I don't know. Do we make everybody shuffle around every five years? Do we knock down all the nice houses and say everybody has to live in a squat? Um, ideally, what we do is we have the economy of radical abundance that enthusiasts in, the, in Silicon Valley talk about, and machines make lots of new houses and lots of new cars and all new clothes and food very efficiently and make it all very cheaply so everybody can have great stuff. Well, that's a great future, and I hope we get there. The sort of the Star Trek economy, where your your replicator, your nanotechnology produces everything that you need at essentially no cost. That'd be great. But even if we get there, there will always be scarcity, uh, as you said, the beachfront property. You simply can't have everybody living in a beachfront property because there isn't enough beach. Um, you can't have everybody with an Aston Martin DB5 because there aren't enough of them, at least not the original ones. You could if we all live in virtual reality. So it may be that virtual reality has a major role to play in dealing with the, uh, the difficulty of, of, um, of inequality. And that's if we get through the, the, the transition of giving professional drivers and lawyers and doctors and teachers and so on uh, enough money that they're not living on subsistence. Yeah, and I've asked you an unanswerable question. You've done a fantastic job answering, so thank you. But the one question I, I always ask, and it's probably out of self-interest as well, is for my children um, and for somebody who's in university at the moment or making a choice of what, what subjects to study, is, is what direction do you see people should look at in the future? So technology, I think, coding, for example, that's going to be a language they will learn in schools pretty soon they are in some schools already but that's not the answer i think like certainly i get the feeling and we we had martin gaddis on last week's show and he was talking about in a world where ai is king you need to be more human and you need to sing dance and, and write poetry what's your feel on on where we should focus our efforts yeah it's a great question and and a lot of people are asking it so i've got um slightly cynical and entirely uncynical answers to it. The slightly cynical answer is, uh, I think when the economic singularity hits, and I do think it's a when rather than if, people with money are going to be better placed to handle it than people without money. And so if you're leaving university at the moment or thinking about a, a career or thinking about a course to study, um, it's probably a good idea to make a lot of money very fast, if you can. Uh, of course, that's not option open to everybody. Um, the second, again, slightly cynical suggestion is in a world where the modern type of AI, so deep learning, other forms of machine learning, are powering value, they're, they're what creates value in the economy, it's probably a good idea to be involved with them. So if you're, unfortunately, you have to be very bright to be able to do this. Machine learning is not easy. So if you're smart and you know, if you're good with numbers, then go into machine learning. My less cynical answer is that if we make the transition successfully, then we will all live in this great um, new world in which machines do all the work and all the jobs and uh, we, we get to play. We have lives of leisure. 
So actually what we need is vacational education, not vocational education. The people who will enjoy a life of leisure are people who've got well-stocked minds, who have a good liberal arts and science education, who've got a pretty decent idea of how the world works on a physical level and a psychological level. Uh, so a good broad education is what will prepare you for a very long life of leisure. Uh, so get a good all-round education. I do hear people saying that uh, what we should all do is 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 uh, practice our creative faculties, develop our creative faculties, and as you say, be singers and dancers. I don't think that's going to help because I do think machines are going to be doing entertainment as well as anything else. It's been fascinating, Callum, and, and we could talk for hours because the, the amount of knowledge that's on your site, and it's, it's www.pandoras-brain.com, um, is, is fantastic. There's free short stories on there, all your talks and, and interviews on there your books, links to your books, The Economic Singularity, Surviving AI, and, and your, your, your fictional novel, which I have to say isn't that fictional, which is Pandora's Brain, are fantastic. And, and uh, you know, tip of the cap to you. And uh, thank you very much for your time, Callum. Well, thank you, Aidan. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure we'll talk again in the future, maybe when, uh, when the, the tides shift a little bit further. I look forward to that.